you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 18. We are looking at verses 15 to 35 this morning. While you're turning there, I would just like to say hi again, uh, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. Uh, We're really glad that you're here. Uh, And I'd love to say hi to you after the service if you'd like to do that. I'll be sort of around up front. Uh, But we're really glad that you're here with us visiting today. Uh, We're looking this morning at Matthew 18, verses 15 to 35. This is the second half of Matthew 18, which we looked at uh, last week. Um, There's a lot here. So I'm going to read this. We're going to pray and ask God for his help to understand it. And then we're going to just jump right in. So this is Matthew 18, verses 15 to 35. This is Jesus talking. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them... Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name... There I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or maybe even 70 times seven times, which is a lot. Therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt." So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Sobering words 
from Jesus here. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand them. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us on our own to figure out how we should live as your people, but you've given us your word. And we pray this morning that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds. Show us our sin and show us Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. We're in Matthew 18, and I told you last week that Matthew 18 is Jesus talking to his disciples about life in the church, life in and among the community of God's people. And last week, we talked a little bit about what it is we should do with our own sin, how we should think about our own sin, and we saw that we have to take sin very seriously in our own lives. But more than that, we also have to take grace seriously. The two things must always go together. This week, we're actually going to look at a similar theme, but we're going to look at not our own sin necessarily. We're going to look at what happens in the church when we are sinned against. And the first thing we're going to see here is that in the church, when we are sinned against, we must take sin Seriously. We must take sin seriously. The church must take sin seriously. The first half of this passage that we're looking at this morning is a response to a question of, of what should we do when a brother sins against us? And when, when you see the Bible say brother, what that means is a fellow Christian. When a fellow Christian sins against us, how do we respond? And in these opening verses of Matthew 18, 15, and following, Jesus lays out a process for what to do when we are sinned against by a fellow Christian. The first thing in verse 15 is we go to that person directly. If someone sins against us, we go to them and say, I believe you have sinned against me. If the person repents, then great. The process ends there. You're reconciled. But if they don't listen, Jesus says there's a second step. And the second step is you take two or three other people with you and go to that person and say, hey, we believe you have sinned against this individual. Again, if that person says, yes, I have, I'm sorry, I repent, the process ends there and you are reconciled. But if he doesn't listen to you along with the two or three others, the third step of the process, Jesus says, is to tell the church, which I take to mean that, that we tell the, the leadership of the church uh, or perhaps uh, a subset of the membership. But the point is that it comes to the awareness of the broader congregation. And they say to this person, hey, you have sinned, brother. You need to repent. Jesus says if the person doesn't listen even to that, he should be to us the church, as a Gentile or a tax collector, which means he is no longer part of the fellowship of the congregation. Uh, in our common parlance, we talk about that as excommunication, uh, removing someone from the fellowship of the church. A few thoughts 
on this process, or rather a few notations. There's a ton here. We could probably do six weeks on Matthew 18, and we're going to try to cram it all into two. So just some highlights or some bullet points here on this process. Number one, note that the first step of this process is to go directly to the person that you believe has sinned against you. Uh, Go directly. That doesn't mean go to others and ask for prayer. That doesn't mean go to others and ask for advice. It means if someone has sinned against you, go directly to that person. But here's the problem. That's super awkward. Isn't it? It's awkward to go to people and tell them you think that they have sinned against you because we don't like to do that. Relationships between two people are inherently unstable because there's no winner. Uh, It's just he said, she said all the time. There was a short-lived TV show on NBC probably 10 years ago called The Marriage Ref. And it was husbands and wives could come onto the show and a panel of three comedians would give them a winner in their marital disputes. Uh, In fact, the tagline is, we give every marriage what it always wants, a winner. Relationships between two people are difficult. I often joke that 90% of my job is encouraging people to have awkward conversations with one another. It's hard. It's hard to go to somebody and say, you've hurt me. We don't like to be vulnerable, for one thing, but we don't like to confront people. We live in a world where confronting is sort of, we think it's unloving. If you come to me with a complaint about another person, like the next question, this is just a preview of coming attractions, is going to be, have you talked to that person directly? It's what Jesus is calling us to do here. And and I would say part of the way to realize how seriously you want to take being sinned against is if you are unwilling to go to the person directly before you do anything else, I would say you probably need to let that thing go. There's maybe one exception to this rule, and I'll mention it here because I think it's important to say it. And that is, if you are in a position where you're being sinned against and someone is harming you, someone is hurting you, if someone is abusing you, uh, please don't feel like the only thing you can do there is confront that person directly. Um, please feel free in those situations to come and talk to me or any of the elders or any responsible adult or person in the church. Um, That is not the right context for understanding this process that Jesus lays out. So again, that's the first thing we see here is that we go directly to the person who has sinned against us. A second thing we see in this process is that the goal of this process is reconciliation, not winning. The goal is to be reconciled to the person who has sinned against you. Jesus says it explicitly in verse 15. He says, if your brother repents, you've gained your brother. The goal is reconciliation, not being declared the victor in a dispute. Keep that in mind. The third thing, when we see the end of this process being excommunication, being removal from the fellowship of the church, that sounds so harsh and it sounds so difficult that I think it's important to understand really what Jesus is getting at here. Excommunication is only 
for unrepentance. That is the only sin for which a person is removed from the church. It's not that the person has done something really bad and so they get kicked out of the church. It's not that it's scandalous or publicly known and so the person is kicked out of the church. The point is here that if a person is confronted with sin over and over and over and over again and they refuse to repent... What Jesus is saying is you treat that person like a tax collector or a Gentile, not because you're trying to shun or shame that person, but because it's really hard to say that that person has a credible profession of faith in Christ. If that person is unwilling to repent after being uh, confronted with sin over and over again, it's hard to say that the gospel is at work in that person. A repentant murderer would not be removed from fellowship in the church, but an unrepentant gossip would. It's not about the gravity of the sin, it's about repentance and unrepentance. The fourth thing here, which I've already given away because I started talking too much on the last point, uh, is that the goal here is not to shun or to shame someone who would be removed from the fellowship of the church. Think of how Jesus treats tax collectors and Gentiles. That's how he is calling us to treat people that are eventually removed from the fellowship of the church if that happens. Jesus treats these folks with gentleness and compassion and love. It's not a public shaming. It's not a call to shun that individual, but a call to continue pursuing that person with gentleness compassion, and love. And here's a final thought, just for speed. God is with the church in this process. That's the assurance that Jesus gives his disciples here. He is with the church when they are walking through difficult matters of sin and repentance together. And that's what Jesus means in verse 18 when he says, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing means when the church imposes what we would call a, a censure, when the church says, um, when the church admonishes a person to repent or when the church says, hey, brother, you should not approach the Lord's table until you are willing to repent. When the church does that rightly, God himself ratifies that decision. Now, that doesn't mean that the church controls God's forgiveness or the church controls God's uh, mind towards individuals. It's when the church acts faithfully and obediently and prayerfully in these things that God acts and agrees and ratifies those things. And then you get down to verse 20, and, and, and Jesus is saying the same thing. God is with the church in this process, where two or three are gathered in my name, There I am among them. He's saying that these decisions that the church makes when they make them faithfully to discipline the members who are unrepentant is actually what God himself is doing in the lives of those members. Uh, Another way to say that might be to say verse 20 is not about small groups. 
uh, or prayer groups, which is usually where we hear that, right? If two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That is a promise to the disciples when they are walking through difficult matters of sin, not about generally gathering together. The point of all of this, and this is heavy and I'm moving through it quickly and I get that, but the point of all of this is Jesus is saying the church has to take sin seriously. Sin matters. We have to take it seriously. That leads us here into the rest of the passage. Peter uh, comes up to Jesus uh, after hearing this and says, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive someone if they sin against me? Like seven times? Which I love because Peter probably thought he was being pretty gracious. Like seven times seems like a lot to forgive somebody. And Jesus says, not seven, 77. Uh, Or in the Greek, it could also be 70 times seven, uh, which would be 490 times. To which you can imagine Peter saying, Lord, I can't count that high. And Jesus says, exactly. That's the point. We get a therefore here, and Jesus tells a parable. Therefore, responding to Peter... Jesus tells a parable, and the point of that parable is simply this. The church must take grace seriously. We don't just take sin seriously, we take grace seriously. This story is amazing. Listen to what happens. The king is collecting debts, and he turns out he has a debtor who owes him 10,000 debts talents. That is a stupid amount of money. Uh, One talent is 20 years worth of wages for a laborer. So 10,000 talents is 200,000 or 200,000 years, not dollars, 200,000 years worth of pay. If you made $15 an hour for 200,000 years, that is around 6.2 $24 billion. That's billion with a B. That is this guy bought Peloton, the corporation, on his credit card, and that's what he owes. $6.24 billion. It is an unpayable debt. And of course he can't pay. So the king says, hey, time to pay the credit card bill. The guy's like, I can't. And the king says, all right, I'm selling you and your family and everything you own, and I'm, I'm selling you into debt slavery. And the idea is basically this guy's assets are liquidated, and his entire family is sold off to be slaves, and functionally their labor is how they're going to recoup some of the expense of the debt that this man has incurred. And the man realizes his whole life is crumbling around him and he falls down on his knees and he begs the king. He says, give me time. I will pay everything back to you. He can't pay everything back. He can't, he can't raise $6.24 billion to pay this credit card bill. There's nothing this guy can do. But the king looks at his servant who is in way, way, way over his head on his knees before him. And he has pity on him. And he releases the man who has been ready to be sold into slavery. And he forgives the debt. He forgives the debt. Think about that. 
The guy doesn't pay what he can. The king forgives the debt, which means he absorbs the loss. He absorbs the cost. Can you imagine absorbing a $6.24 billion loss? That's ridiculous. I wouldn't do it. I couldn't do it. This is profound forgiveness. How do you think this servant felt? I mean, mean, like, what an amazing feeling that would be. Like, not only do you no longer have that debt hanging over your head, you're like, you're free. What an amazing feeling. And the servant leaves where the king is, and, and he's walking around, and he comes across another servant, and it's a servant who owes him 100 denarii. Now, a denarius was one day's wage for a laborer. So a hundred denarii is about $12,000. That's a 10-year-old Honda Civic with more than 100,000 miles on it. It's not Peloton, Honda Civic. The guy sees him, and he grabs him, and he starts choking him, and he says, give me my money. And the man falls to his knees and he begins begging the servant. He says, give me time, I'll pay you everything. But the servant says, no way. I need my money, I need it now. And so he throws this guy into debtor's prison. And debtor's prison is this place where you would go and you would kind of do indentured work and you would also be incurring expenses for your you know, time there of food and living in the prison. And across the world now, this is functionally outlawed because it is so unjust, a terrible, terrible practice. But the servant throws his fellow servant into the debtor's prison over a loan on a Honda Civic from 2012. Other servants see this, and they realize that this is the same guy who just had his $6.24 billion debt forgiven. And so they're distressed. This guy has seen profound generosity from the king, and yet he is beating up and throwing into prison a man who owes him just a pittance of a debt. Well, they go and they report this back to the king. And the king summons the the servant and he says, you are a wicked servant. I forgave you a huge debt. I forgave you a profound debt. You should have done the same. And the king takes that servant whose debt was forgiven and he threw him in jail until his debt could be repaid, which it couldn't be. He threw him in jail for the rest of of his life. Jesus concludes this story in verse 35 by saying, So my Father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Man, that's unnerving. That, that's hard to hear. It, and it doesn't, it's not meant to be a threat. But it's meant to help us understand that the gospel must make us gospel people. And that being forgiven makes us forgiving of others. Grace transforms us. We must take grace seriously. In the parable, I hope it's obvious, God is the one who is the master. God is the king, and we are invited to consider ourselves the servant with the unpayable debt. And friends, that is entirely 
accurate of our condition before God. We have sinned against an infinitely holy God, which means our debt is functionally infinite. But God forgives us. And he doesn't forgive us because our groveling is compelling or because we promise to make it up to him. God forgives us because he wants to. He forgives because he wants to. All we have to do to receive forgiveness is ask for it. Forgiveness is a gift. Forgiveness is grace. And the parable is inviting us to see that if we have been forgiven an infinite debt, we are called, therefore, to forgive others. We pray it every week. In the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's a few things we see in this story that I think have to drive this home in our hearts and minds. One is, the story assumes that we will be sinned against. Uh, It is an expected outcome in your life. You will be sinned against. So I would suggest not being outraged or shocked, or surprised when it happens. Remember Peter's question, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? Jesus says 500 times. It's a lot of times. You will be sinned against. But because we are gospel people, forgiveness will be or must be our default posture. When we are sinned against... Our instinct must be to forgive. But here's the thing. Forgiveness is not a natural skill in a broken world. Forgiveness is not a natural skill in a culture stripped of grace. So how do we do it? How do we learn to forgive? I think there's one thing we can do that helps us learn to forgive more than almost anything else. And it's simply this, repent. If you want to forgive, learn to repent. Because people who forgive are people who repent. Jesus explicitly in this parable ties our ability to forgive to our experience of being forgiven. Therefore, to grow in our ability to forgive, we must grow in our understanding of the forgiveness we have received from God. And I think we do that as we live lives of repentance. In repentance, we come to understand the depth of our sin more and more truly. We come to understand that sin is deeper than just bad stuff we do. But sin goes all the way down to our motivations. Sin is more than actions and words and thoughts. Sin reminds us, or or, or we sin distorts the way that we love and are motivated to do things such that even the righteous things we do are tainted by sin. We never love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We never love our neighbor as we love ourselves. I've given you J.I. Packer's definition of repentance a hundred times. 
Uh, Here's one more. Repentance means turning from as much as I know of my sin to give as much as I know of myself to as much as I know of my God. And as our knowledge grows at those three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. Friends, we never outgrow repentance in the Christian life. As we repent, we come more and more to see our inability to pay the debt we owed God on our own. And as we understand ever more deeply how great the debt is we owe to an infinitely holy God, we begin to grasp the gospel's inexhaustible riches. This is why self-righteousness is by far the most dangerous spiritual condition. If you have confidence in yourself that you have done all that God requires, you are blind to sin, which not only endangers you, it also makes you stingy and hard-hearted and unwilling to forgive others. A person who has run out of the ability to repent has run out of the ability to forgive. If you have no need to repent, you have no ability to forgive. Here's one final thought, and it concerns the nature of repentance. Forgiveness is not about how we feel. Forgiveness is not about our feelings. Forgiveness is not about getting over the wrong that we have suffered or the debt that we are owed. Forgiveness is a choice to absorb the cost of the wrong that has been done to us. Because of this, every act of forgiveness feels like death. Forgiveness feels like death. Brene Brown, the social science researcher, says, for forgiveness to happen, something has to die. Your expectations... Your hopes, your rights, your power, all of them have to die if forgiveness is to happen. And friends, I hope you see this takes you right back to the very heart of the gospel. Because the gospel is simply the fact that God has absorbed the cost of our sin, of our debt, of our rebellion in the cross of Jesus Christ. The point of this parable is to remind us that the church is populated entirely by people who don't deserve to be here. The church is full of people who have had an unpayable debt forgiven and who are now learning slowly to forgive one another and thus bear witness to the character of their king. So friends, whether we are individually thinking about this or together thinking about this as the church, we must take sin seriously because we must take grace seriously. Indeed, we have no hope without it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are a God who forgives. You have absorbed the cost of infinite wrongdoing 
against your character and your goodness. Father, overwhelm us with the majesty and the magnitude of your forgiveness. Help us see our sin truly. When we see it in our own hearts, Lord, help us to turn away from it. When we see it in the church, help us to confront it and to do it appropriately. Not as those who are better than one another, but as those who have been forgiven. Father, let us be a community of forgiveness, bearing witness to your goodness and your grace. Father, even now as we come to your table, we pray that you would be at work in us. You would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose. To show us our sin, but even more importantly, to show us Christ, who has dealt once and for all with our sin. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.